HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, all right. It's Monday. It's 12 o'clock. We're right on time today. And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, And so we have a really fun show today, a really exciting and unusual show. Part of it is going to be live, like right now. And in a few minutes, we're going to roll a tape uh, from uh, an interview that I did in Washington, D.C. about two weeks ago with the Democratic Congresswoman from Maine, Shelley Pingree. You've heard her on these airwaves before. I know she was on my show about seven years ago when she, when I first started and when she was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and so uh, it was an interesting thing to reconnect with her. She actually claimed that she remembered it. I'm pretty sure she didn't, but didn't matter. She's a wonderful person and she's a wonderful legislator. And I really appreciate all the work that she does in Congress for our benefit on the food system and beyond. Um, in the meantime, uh, we're going to start the segment with joys and sorrows. You know how much I love my joys and sorrows. And this week I have a lot of joys. It's been a great, uh, some somehow a great week in some ways. And so on the joy side, we have the very good news that recreational marijuana use is on five more state ballots this year. Uh, I happen to enjoy recreational marijuana usage every once in a while. So I'm particularly happy to see this. And also remember that the, for instance, Colorado and the other states that have passed recreational marijuana use have made absolutely gajillions of dollars in taxes on it. And it's a wonderful way to boost a state economy and it's a great crop. So why not? Anyway, it's going on to the ballots of Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada. If it passes in those states, then one-fourth of this nation will have recreational marijuana usage legalized, while one-half already have medical marijuana laws on their books. Frankly, in my opinion, it's beyond time to make pot legal in all 50 states, and I'm really hoping that they continue to pass one state as one state after another realizes what a windfall those taxes are. I mean, Colorado has done amazing stuff with their with their marijuana tax money. It's just, you know, that's why 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 do you think everybody's moving out there? It's not just so they can smoke dope. It's because the services are extraordinary because they have extraordinary amounts of money in their coffers. 
Anyway, um, to go on, uh, after my sales pitch for smoking weed, um, <laughs> uh, this past week saw the New York Times Food for Tomorrow conference. And the Agricultural Secretary, Tom Vilsack, uh, announced that he has awarded 56, or rather the USDA has awarded $56 million in grants to strengthen local and regional food systems, as well as support for farmers markets and organic research. This isn't bad. I mean, I think it's, you know, one of the things that I used to lament as I uh, started doing this radio program nearly eight years ago was the fact that everybody was talking about re-regionalizing the food system. And the fact was, is that there was no investment in any of the sort of infrastructural aspects of creating a re-regionalized food system in the form of uh, things like production facilities or warehouses or, you know, places where people could store, farmers could bring and store and clean and prepare their produce for market. So uh, that obviously is part of what's going to be funded by this $56 million in grants, um, more organic research. I'm not sure what that implies, but I obviously more is better. Uh, and um, it would be good to see this, you know, sort of, expanded into the hundreds of millions of dollars, 56 million bucks sounds like a lot of money, but when you break it all down, it really doesn't um, go very far as far as I'm concerned. Um, I certainly wouldn't sneeze at $56 million in my own pocket. But when you talk about, you know, hundreds of, if not tens of thousands of farmers uh, trying to take a piece out of that pie, that's, it ends up being not so much, but nevertheless, considering the forces that are arrayed against changes in the food system, this is excellent news. So, Joy number two for this week. Here's something that is sort of in the joy and sorrow category. You know how I always say things are never black and white. There's always gray or, you know, some things that are joyous in one way is are sorrowful in others. Well, this comes into that. This is part of that particular category. And that is that seven species of Hawaiian bees have been put on the endangered species list. So the good news is, is that they've been put on the endangered species list. The bad news is, is that they've been put on the endangered species list. Um, the only problem is that their protection is predicated upon identifying and preserving their habitat, uh, an issue which is still under discussion. At the same time, recommendations have been put forward to protect a bee from the Midwest, which is more to our point when it comes to preserving our pollinators on the mainland. So let's hope that, um, you know, this kind of uh, effort to preserve pollinators and especially bees uh, continues and goes forward and that there is some sort of effort, not effort, but some sort of coordinated program with which to save uh, bees on the mainland as well as in Hawaii. And lastly, uh, I'm sure you all noticed and rejoiced at the fact that Trump's tax records from 1995 were leaked. And guess what? Yes, it's 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 old news now, but he didn't pay taxes for 18 years or hasn't paid taxes in 18 years or so says the New York Times. Why? Because he lost nearly a billion with a B, a billion dollars that year. Does that make him a good businessman? According to Chris Christie, another genius, Chris Christie says he is a genius. So does that other genius, Rudolph Giuliani. <laughs> These two thugs <laughs> go around, you know, on the, on the pants, hanging on the coattails of Donald Trump, thinking that they're going to get something good out of him. I mean, the guy has never... Uh, failed to screw people who have who have either done work or helped him. So it's hard to imagine that they are really thinking that they're going to get, you know, some sort of cabinet position out of the dude should he, by some hideous 
uh, chance uh, become uh, our president. But that's not going to happen. I'm just not I'm not thinking that way. In any case, uh, he's got the two thugs, Christie and, and Giuliani, touting his his genius as a businessman. But that's that is the Republican uh, playbook, isn't it? Up is down. Black is white. Losing is winning. We saw that last week with the debate. So uh, coming up just in a minute or two, we're going to have a sponsor drop, and then we will roll the tape of my interview with Shelley Pingree. I actually went down to the House of Representatives. They have a recording studio in their basement to which we were ushered. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation for 30 minutes. My eye was firmly on the clock. And then I sort of trolled around the halls of the House of Representatives looking for other future victims. So far, I have not been able to corral anyone else, even though I knocked on many a door in uh, the halls of Congress. Um, But um, I may go down and do it again and see what I can rustle up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, listen to our sponsor drop and then stay tuned for uh, my interview with Shelley Pingree, the U.S. uh, Democratic representative from the state of Maine. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified Seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. We're here today with Shelley Pingree, the Democratic Congresswoman from the 1st District of Maine, a position she has held since 2008. Prior to her election to the House of Representatives, she was the national president and CEO of Common Cause, a nonpartisan citizen activist group with nearly 300,000 members and 35 state chapters. Common Cause's mission is to help citizens make their voices heard in the political process and to hold their elected leaders accountable to the public interest. Before that, she had served four terms as a state senator, all while raising a family, running an organic farm, and developing a small business. Welcome back to the show. It's been a long time, Congresswoman Pingree. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. Um, we talked, I think, the last time as the farm bill, the last farm bill That's was right. going into into sort of, um, I guess, negotiation. Um, but let's start a little bit with your bio, because I don't know how many people are aware of the fact that you went from being an organic farmer to then somehow inexplicably leaving the farm and getting involved in doing things like writing a farm bill. (laughs) Well, I feel very fortunate to um, have had so much experience with farmers and to come from a state like Maine where um, we have a lot of organic farmers and a variety of other people who um, really are kind of leading the way in the the next revolution in farming. But I have been um, involved in organic farming for over 40 years, Um, still run my own organic farm. Uh, I have a lot of other good people who help to make it happen, but it's a great thing because it means that, you know, when I'm home on the weekends, we're thinking about what the new FISMA rules are going to mean for your average farmer, what the organic standards are, what the market looks like, what our customers are acting, asking about. Um, 
um, and the challenges of trying to make ends meet on a small farm. That's right. Small-scale farming is never easy, and organic farming is certainly even harder, I think, than the regular type. And and just to be clear, FSMA is the Food Safety Modernization Act. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people knew what that was because, I mean, after all, not everybody has the opportunity to sit in the halls of Congress with the representative herself and have the—I mean, really, I can't thank you enough for this It's not as glamorous as it sounds, and you're right. I don't like it when people use um, initials either, so I'll try not to do that (laughs) one again. But um, anyway, let's talk a little bit more about um, how you got from farming to— Congress, like, what was your thought process behind that? I mean, why did well, you want to like do a, that? You know, I, I'm like one of those um, elected officials who said, you know, I never anticipated that I would do this, and if my parents saw me today, they'd be absolutely shocked that they had a daughter <laughs> in Congress. I actually, um, I was born in Minnesota, and my grandparents were Scandinavian immigrants who had a dairy farm. But you know, as I was growing up, I was like a lot of kids who just thought the last thing I would ever do is be on a farm. But, you know, things happen. I ended up in Maine, and I was there during the 70s when there was a big back-to-the-land movement. I had a copy of Helen and Scott Nearing's Living the Good Life. Oh, and my God, you're a hippie. I was a total back-to-the-land hippie. <laughs> and, uh, no wonder we love you. After a couple of years of that, I decided maybe I should get a college education or learn a little more. I ended up going to College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, mm-hmm. and was lucky enough to have Elliot Coleman as one of my teachers. So Elliot is still revered. That is lucky. In, um, agriculture. And so I've run a variety of farms ever since then. And one day, years into it, a woman who'd been at my farm stand um, contacted me and said, you know, we're really looking for a candidate for the state legislature. Uh, Would you consider it? And I told her it was the furthest thing from my, you know, I had kids. I was running a small business. I was raising sheep. Um, It just didn't seem like a good idea, but I couldn't get the idea out of my mind. I later on found out that it was a Republican district, so of course they couldn't find a Democratic candidate. But I think my farming background, my small business background, I was um, selling knitting products and wool yarn at the time, so a lot of little ladies got behind me and a lot of people who thought it was good to have a small business person and a farmer in there. And I won, and that was in 92, and managed to stay in the state Senate uh, for eight years, which is our term limit. And um, then I've been able to come back since uh, 2008. And One thing I can say, um, besides the great value of having had farming experience over these years, but I've also seen the tremendous change in the consumer movement around wanting to eat healthier foods, the opportunities it's opened up for farmers. And in a state like Maine, where the average age of our farmers going down, more farms are under cultivation, Mm -hmm. we are really living the example that it's time to change our farming practices and the consumer is driving that. That's fantastic news. Um, So since we're talking about uh, food and farming, Um, One of the most important pieces of legislation that you've introduced in the last year or so has been the food date labeling law. And, you know, as sort and and I'm sure there's a concurrent part of it that goes towards food, more food waste uh, protocols. Can you talk a little bit about the first of all, the confusion around food date labeling, (laughs) which is unbelievable. And then also about how this will tackle food waste and what kind of impact you expect it to have. Yeah, we introduced a comprehensive bill called the Food Recovery Act. And the Food Date Labeling Act is a piece we pulled out of it. So, yes, we are looking at um, a whole variety of components around food waste. We raised an enormous amount of food in this country, possibly 40 percent, which is an environmental issue, a cost issue, um, an insult to the farmers who grow it, and also is keeping a lot of hungry people from accessing the food that they want. So there are a lot of reasons we should change that. And one that could have a big um, benefit would be 
changing the date labeling on food. Um, I often, when I'm speaking to a group of people, I'll say, have any of you ever had a dispute in your household where someone says, oh, look at the date. We should throw it away. And the other one says, that's perfectly good food. Why should we throw it away? And you're both confused or you get in an argument about who's right, um, which led us to think maybe we should call this a domestic harmony bill because <laughs> we, could, we could fix this confusion. The fact yeah. is that most labels on food have nothing to do with a scientific basis, or they may, but it would be by the manufacturer. So it's arbitrary what a manufacturer chooses to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like to see some uniformity, and we'd also like to see it um, labeled in such a way so that the consumer can understand if that is a label telling you that the food expires, that it's actually not safe after that date, or if it's just a best buy, best, you know, best use this product by. Right. So they're saying to you, the crackers will taste better if you eat them now, but they won't make you sick tomorrow. Uh, the fact is that's one of the biggest reasons we throw out food. In 20 states in the country, supermarkets are required to throw out food after that date, even though the food might be perfectly healthy mm. and could have uses. Some of them, um, some of those items get donated to food banks, but then the consumer there says, should I eat this? Is this okay to eat? Um, So we waste an enormous amount of food in our country that way. And um, we've gotten a lot of support um, both sides of the aisle. Um, Interestingly, even though I often tackle um, tough issues and edgy issues that don't have everyone on my side. We've had a lot of um, interest in the food processing industry. And oh, some of them are looking for, you know, standards to go ahead voluntarily. I think many of them um, who have endorsed this bill are saying, you know what, we'd like to clear up this confusion too, and we don't like to see our products thrown away off the supermarket shelf. Let's let's fix this. So, Although I, for them, there's a profit motive in seeing the products thrown off the shelf. You know, we originally thought perhaps that would be true. Um, but like I said, we've had big food companies come to us, Campbell's Soup, Nestle's, and say, we'd like to alleviate this. Mm -hmm. And we actually think there's real value in consumers understanding more about, you know, the difference between food that you should eat and you shouldn't. I think it just, I guess it would would give people a better sense of security having that confusion cleared up. And that's good for the public relations aspect of any food company's brand, isn't it? Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Have you heard about the, um, the French? I know you have, but the French have just banned supermarkets from throwing out food. It's a great across the board. Yeah, I, I'm really no impressed. More food waste. Yes, I know. I'm trying to get the agricultural community to uh, to have a field trip to France. I think we should oh, look I at this firsthand. You should. But um, we yeah. are always cutting our budgets, so that's not likely to happen. But that's... I do think that's very forward thinking. And um, again, I think you know, for most supermarkets, it's a cost saving measure for them too. And I would we're, think. we're seeing. Um, you know, in my home state, Hannaford, one of the companies is already um, trying to implement their own no-waste policy, making mm-hmm. sure that food gets, you know, reused, donated, um, or it's being sent to a composting facility or an anaerobic digester. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies are seeing the value in that, and certainly municipal waste systems could benefit greatly because it is one of our greatest sources of municipal waste. Absolutely. Plus, um, you know, that produces methane gas, which is more toxic than many of the greenhouse gases we're already worrying about. Yes. So there's no good reason to be doing that. Absolutely. And as you pointed out, we have so many food insecure people in this country that the idea of throwing out food that could be consumed by all of these hungry seniors, children, et cetera, is just, you know, frankly criminal from my no, point of No, it's thinking. unthinkable. And actually, yeah. it's one of those issues where, you know, virtually everybody's grandmother told them not to waste food. Yeah. So it's not partisan. It's just like, how do we fix it? Yeah, it's common sense. Well, I'm so glad you have the common sense to bring 
this up <laughs> into a body of politicians who apparently don't have an awful lot of that commodity to go around. Um, you have another really cool program that you've been working on in Maine, and that is about training young farmers. Talk about that for a minute. It's such a cool idea. Well, Maine has really done a great job over the years of having opportunities for young farmers. Um, some of them are through the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, which mm-hmm. is one of the oldest um, organic farming associations in the country. They run a wonderful apprenticeship program and now have a journey person program, which is kind of the next step in that. And as we know, there are a lot of young people who would like to get into farming, and the best way to learn is frequently alongside another farmer. Absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of you know complicated skills to learn along the way. Uh, Maine's also done a good job at receiving USDA funds um, through the beginning ranch, uh, beginning farmer and rancher development program. One of those is at Wolf's Neck Farm in Freeport, mm-hmm. where they're tackling the challenging issue of how to train um, new dairy farmers. You know, our dairy industry, uh, our far- farmers in the dairy industry are aging out. They're getting old, and there aren't enough young farmers to replace them. And there aren't enough young farmers with the skills, 